Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and uh, we are live here to study the truth of God's Word together. We're live on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. Good morning, Keith. Glad you're with us. Good morning, Alan. Good to see uh, a new face around here. Welcome, and uh, feel free to enter into the chat any comments or questions you have along the way. Uh, today, we're, cons we're continuing our study of the Law of Moses and the Law of Christ. And the, the content, the, the, the conclusion that we're going to come to today, actually that Paul comes to, may surprise you. In fact, if you've never noticed this before, it may actually shock you a bit. Uh, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but I remember distinctly the first time I really saw what Paul said, not what I thought he said, but what he actually said, and it took me by surprise as he described the purpose of the law. So we're going to look at that, uh, especially in the book of Romans today. Now, before we get into it, I want to briefly review where we've been the last couple of uh, sessions because it uh, ties in very closely to what we're going to look at today. So we have been looking at the law of Moses and its role in the scripture. And I stress that because so often when we think about the law of Moses, we think about its role in systematic theology and what theologians present to us. But there is a danger in systematic theology. And we'll come back to this at the end. There's some questions from yesterday that I, I told you we would get to. There's, uh, there are several uh, questions that I want to address. And one of them is, uh, what about the systematic theology thing? Um, but I, I just want us to see that the law, as it's presented in the New Testament, is not given to us from a, a systematic doctrinal perspective. It is given to us in a historical perspective. The law played a role in redemptive history, in the history of Israel and God's plan to get to Jesus. And that's how we are supposed to interpret and view the law of Moses. So in Galatians, we saw that Paul drew a line from Abraham to Christ and showed the role of the law in the nation of Israel and how um, God's plan from Abraham to Christ kind of kind of leapfrogged the uh, the uh, the law and the law had a specific purpose in that plan. Well, we're going to see something similar today, but now instead of going from Abraham to Christ, Paul is going to go from Adam to Christ. And then it still begs the question, what role does the law play? So let's take a look at it. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. <coughs> Again, I apologize. I, I, I was telling my wife earlier, I wonder if I am uh, going to be stuck with this cough for the rest of my life. It's just been like four, almost five weeks now. Um, I don't know if this is long COVID or what it is. But uh, anyway, so I apologize for coughing in your ears, but uh, I can't help it. All right, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So this is the end of a long, sustained argument that Paul has been making. And it's a, there's some confusion, uh, some co confusing things that he says earlier, starting in verse 12. Uh, but he brings it to a head and, and brings his conclusion. So let's look at Romans 5, 18 here. So then, after all he's been saying, here's the conclusion. As through one man, I'm sorry, one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men 
Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So this is the point that Paul's making. And we're not going to take the time here. We're not doing a study of Romans. We're not going to take the time to get into everything that is here. This is a rich and important section, but I want to get to our purpose. But you got to at least understand the, the broader point he's being that's being made here. So what he's arguing, what he has been arguing through this section, starting in verse 12, is that <coughs> the reason all human beings die, okay? We know that, right? We know that. This is this is death and taxes, and, and we might conceive of a, a time when taxes wouldn't be... Um, it wouldn't exist, although it's hard to think of. But we know that death is true of all men. It's a universal truth. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Every man who's lived dies. That's, that's the truth of mankind. Well, why? Why is that? Well, Paul's argument in this section is we die because we are in Adam. God judged the first man who ever lived. He judged his sin, Adam's sin, with death. And, and he told him that ahead of time, right? He said, on the day you eat of it, you will die. If you, when you disobey me, Adam, you're going to die. Now, he didn't die that day because I would argue God showed mercy. He had a bigger plan. But eventually, Adam did die. And, and of course, we know he died spiritually. But I think he was telling Adam the day you disobey, you're going to die physically. But then he covered over Adam's sin with the, the, the skin, the animal skin, which I believe is a foreshadow of the sacrificial system and then ultimately a foreshadowing of Christ. He covered over that sin, but, but ultimately Adam did die. And Paul's argument is that Adam's sin is your sin and mine. And since Adam was judged guilty and death was the consequence, so all of us who are his offspring are judged guilty because of his sin, and we will die because we are offspring of Adam. That's the argument. And, and again, sometimes we can come back and debate that if you want to and discuss that. But, that. but that's the argument that he's making here. And so he summarizes it with this point again. Through one transgression, that is Adam's transgression, that resulted in condemnation to all men. Even so, in parallel to that, through one act of righteousness, and that is the act of righteousness, that's Jesus' act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life to all men. So you, you see the, the contrast. Condemnation in the sin of Adam, justification in the obedience of of Christ, And then he, he uh, says it again in a different way. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, this is Adam, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So that, that's our lot in Adam, we're made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So you see this parallel. So let me, let me uh, illustrate it here uh, with this little chart. And if, if you're listening... Via podcast, uh, sorry, you're just going to have to listen to me describe it here. You can't see it, obviously. Okay, so Adam is the, the one man, right? And through Adam, his one trespass, 
his one disobedience, men were made sinners, and that brings condemnation to all men. And then Paul compares that to Christ, who's one man, and his one act of righteousness, his obedience, makes men righteous and brings justification and eternal life. Now, again, this is, this is profound, and I would love to, to slow down and walk through this because this is amazing. We're all guilty in Adam, and all men are going to die and, and, and are considered sinners and are condemned to eternal death in hell because they are in Adam. In contrast to that, Christ his one act of righteousness, his one act of obedience. And, and there's some debate as to whether that's his act on the cross or his whole life. But, uh, you know, for now, we're going to bypass all that. But we're made righteous and we are justified and we have eternal life. Uh, this is so profound. But for our purposes, we need to see that Paul is giving the whole story here in these two men. Everybody is in Adam. Every Christian is in Christ, and Paul is kind of boiling down the entire story, the whole flow of human history, everything in God's plan to, to these two men, Adam and Christ. So if, if you're looking at, uh, at the flow of history from these perspectives, then again, the Jew is going to ask the question, Why the law? <laughs> Remember, we looked at, at Abraham, and his story begins in Genesis 12, and Paul leapfrogs to the New Testament, to Matthew, to, to the story of Jesus, and you've got all Exodus through the end of the Old Testament. And say, Well, why, why the law then, if we can just jump from Abraham to Christ? Well, Paul here takes it a step further. Adam's story ends in, you know, basically chapter 5 of, uh, of Genesis. And now he fast forwards to Christ and begs the question or, or provokes the question, why the law? Why not just skip from Adam to Christ? Why thousands and thousands of years and in all the Old Testament unpacking this law of Moses and the people of Israel and the tabernacle and the priests and all those things just to get this to this conclusion you die in Adam you have life in Christ <laughs> what's the point of all of that story in the Old Testament if the ultimate story is getting from Adam to Christ you see the you see the challenge you, you see the problem why the law? What role does the law of Moses play in this story of Adam getting to Christ? Well, he answers the question, and this is where it's, it's rather surprising. It's rather shocking, at least uh, to me. Let me show you what he says here in Romans chapter 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Don't miss that. The law, God brought the law of Moses into the history of redemption, into existence. 
so that the transgression, that the violation of God's law would increase. Do you see how surprising that is? We hear from systematic theologians that God gave the law to teach us how to obey God for sanctification, for uh, enlightenment in how to please him. Now, to be fair, in one perspective, from one perspective, that is, that is true. The Bible does describe the law in that way, at least for the Jews, not for Gentiles, never for Gentiles. But here, Paul is giving us a purpose statement for the law. Why the law? Because he wanted the Jews to sin more, not less. That just pushes against everything that we we think of when we think of why God gives the law. But we have to understand Christ was always the goal. The gospel was always the goal. The law was not given ultimately so that Israel would take pride in it and find their righteousness in it. The point was, God wanted to show Israel their sin. Remember, this is Galatians 3. It was was the custodian, the guardian, keeping Israel imprisoned, in a sense, until Israel would grow up into, uh, to come of age. To, to get 18, we would say in our, our modern uh, language. Uh, so they were children under the custodian, under the guardian, until Christ came, and, and then they were to come of age and no longer under the custodian. There it was to, to keep, them, uh, keep them fenced in. Here, it's actually to provoke more sin in them so that they would see they are wicked, vile people who need a Savior. What was supposed to happen was Israel received the 613 commandments of that law and they continued to violate it. They continued to disobey. And and the more they read and pondered the law, the more they sinned against it. And they were supposed to drive them to say, Lord, have mercy. We are sinners. We, We can't keep this law. There was a man in Jesus's, uh, in the Gospels, a, a parable that Jesus told, well, at least a, an example that got Jesus gave of, of someone who did this. So he said, on the one hand, there's this Pharisee, this self-righteous man who says, oh, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that, that sinner there. You know, I tithe and I keep the Sabbath and I, I obey you. And then there's this man here who's, who recognized his sin and he would, he would not even raise his eyes to look at the altar, to look at the, the, the place of God because he recognized his sin. And Jesus said, it's that man, the second one, that was going to go home just before the Lord, not the Pharisee. Because the Pharisee believed the lie that he was keeping the law. And he wasn't. And at least this other man realized I'm a wicked, wicked person. That's what the law was supposed to do. And how would it do that? Well, it would lay out commandments and then it would actually provoke sin. Every one of you who has children knows exactly how this works. And you you may know how this works from your own experience, right? If you tell a, a young boy, hey, son, see that room over there? See that door, that doorway over there? There's something in there that I don't want you to see. 
So I'm going to go out for a while and you may not go in that door and see what's on the other side of that door. Got it, son? Yes, sir. And then you leave. Now, if you had a video camera recording the actions of that boy, what would happen? <laughs> There's something in that room, son, I do not want you to see. You may not go in that room. I'm leaving. I'll be back later. What can we be sure that every boy would be doing in that moment as soon as dad leaves? <laughs> he now has this internal fight going on, right? He wants to know what's in that room. He wants to violate the command. He wants to go in there. And my guess is nine out of 10 boys, they're going to go in that room. Why? Because the law, don't go in that room. Don't touch that door handle. Don't, don't go in there. That law provokes their sinful desires, and now they can't wait to get in that room. You see that? Well, that's what the law did for Israel. It told them what not to do, and now they want to do it. And that was the design, that was the purpose, so that Israel's sin would increase, so that they would call out to the Lord for mercy and receive the benefits of the Savior who was coming. And instead of that, they grew self-righteous. They thought they were obedient. They sinned more. They, they denied God's justice. They denied his truth. They thought he wasn't paying attention. They said, because we have the law, we're special to God. And God said no. And it brought their destruction. Now, let me just finish this out here in Romans, and then we'll get to the questions. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, both Adam's sin and Israel's sin, as the law provoked their sin, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, this is all one great big uh, philosophy of, hist of history. Uh, Paul's reducing the all, all whole of human history to this. Adam sinned. Then the law came to increase Israel's sin all to get to the reigning of grace through Christ and righteousness and eternal life, Christ. And, and Paul anticipates what some will do with this. If the law came in to increase sin and increased sin brought more grace, which brings glory to God, then should we continue in sin so that grace may increase as well? And if, his answer, of course, is may it never be. Now, that's a, it's a profound thing that he goes on to say. We just don't have time to get into it uh, here because it's not our purpose. All right, so again here in Romans, we see the law is given a, a historical purpose in the history of redemption. Ponder that for a while and ask the question, why would you want to bring anybody under this law that was given to actually increase sin? Why would you want to bring Christians under this law that was given to actually increase the sin of Israel? Okay, so with that as a backdrop, <laughs> let me get to some of the questions that, uh, that came up yesterday because I think they are uh, very important. So Keith asked this question. He said, when do we get back to the Ten Commandments? Now, that's a great question for our study here because it it's making the point that I've been trying to stress through this whole thing. Let me ask a question back. Why do we put the Ten Commandments in a special category? 
I've been describing the law of Moses, the law of Moses here, right? I've been describing it over and over and over again. Why do we put the Ten Commandments in a distinct, unique place as though they are separate from the other laws of Moses? We do that because of systematicians, not because the Bible does this. The Bible treats the law of Moses as a unit. We have been taught the Ten Commandments are somehow a special ten, that we give them priority and that, that, uh, or, or uniqueness and, and that they are still binding on people in a way that the others aren't. Remember we talked about the threefold division of the law that systematicians use, the uh, ceremonial, civil, and moral law, and that ceremonial and civil are, are abrogated, but the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments continue. That is not in the Bible. That is not how the Bible treats the Ten Commandments. So everything I've been saying about the law of Moses is true of the Ten Commandments. So we could say, back to our text here in Romans, the law, the Ten Commandments came in so that the transgression of the Jews would increase. What does Paul go on to say in chapter 6, verse 14? Sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not be your master, for you are not under the Ten Commandments, but under grace. So we need to get away from dividing the law of Moses into these different sections as though the Ten Commandments are somehow still applicable in a way that the other commandments aren't. We got to take the whole Old Covenant law all together as a unit because that's how the New Testament treats it. So everything we've been talking about with respect to the law is true of the Ten Commandments. So there's no getting back to the Ten Commandments. There's just looking at the law of Moses as a, as a, as a whole, as a unit. So Keith, I don't know if that uh, answers your question. If not, please follow up and we'll, uh, we'll see if we can look at it again uh, a different way. All right, so I want to address another question here that came in yesterday. He says, uh, I'm not familiar with the term systematic theology. What is this? Are they dispensational who follow systematic theology? Um, actually, those who are, in, in, in one sense, yes, system, uh, dispensationalists uh, are systematic theologians, but much more so those in the uh, what we call covenant theology, uh, reform theology, Presbyterian, uh, um, Reformed Baptists, Federal Baptists, 1689 Baptists, much more so are all of those groups uh, devotees to systematic theology. And what, what, uh, what I mean by that is uh, they, there, there's this tendency to look at the scripture as a, um, as a book of doctrines and theologies that fit under certain headings. And that becomes the grid and, and filter through which the Bible is interpreted. Uh, and closely associated with the systems are uh, creeds and confessions um, that, uh, that now become the predominant interpretive grid through which we look at, uh, at the scripture. So uh, this is a much bigger question. I've, uh, I've addressed this in earlier courses. So if you, if you want to go back and, uh, and look at 
my uh, my our study on the Sabbath, for instance, you'll get more of it. I will put a link in the show notes when we get done here uh, to a, a short four-part series I did many, many years ago on the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. So uh, that may help you. Um, so so look for that in the in the show notes when I get done here. Um, all right, looks like Dale's got a question that I'll pull up here before I look at uh, one more from yesterday. Uh, Dale says, is it fair to say that systematic theology deals with topics we care about while biblical theology draws out emphases, uh, emphases God has given? Um, I might word that a little differently. Um, I mean, I'm obviously talking here about uh, topics that, that we care about, and, and what I'm trying to show is the emphasis uh, God has given. Um, so let me, let me just kind of describe it again. Systematic theology, uh, and, and Dale, you probably, if you haven't yet, you should watch the, uh, the four-part series I was just referring to because it, 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 it takes a little time to unpack this. But systematic theology, um, uh, so I've been describing, <coughs> we, the, uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to give you the whole, the whole course here in one setting. Um, so when we study the Bible, we do two things with it. All of us do. We do analysis and synthesis. So analysis is, uh, the word literally means, uh, to unloose. So, so like what I was doing here in Romans five, um, we unloose Romans five. We, we pull out just this section that I did for you today, right? We didn't study the entire letter to the Romans. I took out, I unloose, I analyzed a few verses, Okay, and I'm trying to figure out. Okay, what is what do these verses mean? What law is he referring to? And what does it mean that in one man we're righteous and one man we're condemned? Right. I'm sorry. What do these actual words in these sentences mean? I'm I'm pulling it out and analyzing it. But then I synthesize it. That means to put it back into place. So after I take out this section, I put it back into place and try to figure out what's its meaning in the broader story of the scripture. And systematic theology takes this same section out that I just studied for you in Romans 5, loosens it from its place and analyzes it. But when it synthesizes it, instead of primarily putting it back in its flow of uh, Paul's letter and the New Testament and the whole flow of redemptive history, systematic theology puts it back into its doctrinal setting. So, Okay, I've, I've taken this, uh, this statement from Paul in Romans 5, and now, instead of primarily putting it back in Romans and, and the flow of history, I'm going to say, I have other texts that I've taken out of Scripture, and I've put them over here in this category called law. So now I'm going to take, to get, take all the other passages that I've pulled out of the, of the Bible that are helping me formulate this doctrine of law. And so I'm going to synthesize it. I'm going to put it back under this heading of law. And now I'm going to take all of these passages that deal with law and see if I can create a category. Uh, a, a How do I assimilate all of these passages on law together to come up with a doctrine of law? And what that has done is that's caused people to say, okay, I've got all these passages that talk about, um, for instance, the sacrifices. Those were all part of the law of Moses. 
Well, um, we know from our study of the New Testament that we are no longer to do animal sacrifices. So I, as a systematician, have to decide what am I doing with those laws? How can I say those laws don't apply? Then I have these laws that uh, that I, I'm trying to figure out what to do with, and in my doctrine of the law, I decide, oh, they were given to Israel as a nation. So that kind of thinking leads someone to say there are three categories of laws, ceremonial laws having to do with sacrifices and such, civil laws having to do with Israel as a nation, and since Israel is not a nation in the Bible anymore, uh, it's not it's not God's nation anymore, uh, I can say those are all abrogated, but the, the remainder, the Ten Commandments, are the eternal moral law of God. That's all driven by a systematic approach. Okay? I keep emphasizing, nowhere does the Bible divide the law of Moses into those three categories, and nowhere does the New Testament say that those ten laws, the Ten Commandments, are God's eternal moral law, his standard for everyone. Um, right? That's that's systematic theology's conclusion. The Ten Commandments are the eternal standard of righteousness for all men. What we saw yesterday and what we've seen today, that's not true. The, the Ten Commandments are God's temporal standard of righteousness for Israel. But, so the, the systematic approach is... is imposing upon the texts uh, these these standards, these these doctrinal headings. Biblical theology does what I've been doing, takes the text out and then puts it back into its its broader uh, context. And, and, and again, I spell that more out in the, uh, the series that I will post down here. Uh, Dale has a follow-up. Uh, looks like maybe I misunderstood him. <laughs> Good series. I meant to contrast systematic theology, organizing scripture based on whatever topics and categories we impose and are interested in rather than what God has emphasized for us. Okay. Yes, exactly. God emphasizes, the Bible, the New Testament emphasizes that all of scripture is pointing to Christ. And systematic theology tempts us to draw out, and I say tempts us, I, I don't mean to question the integrity of, of systematicians, but it does lead us to error if we're not careful. It leads us to take the topics, yes, that we are interested in and impose them on the text rather than allowing the Bible to, to tell the story God is telling, which is all about Christ. This leads to things like theonomy and uh, and all that discussion, and, and we may come back and, and talk about that some down the road. We want to let the Bible say what it says, and it must always, our first question must be, what does this text tell me about Jesus, not about God abstractly? Let me give you this final one, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Um, just this morning, I was studying in Isaiah. <laughs> And, and systematic theology, I see this all over on, on the internet today, and it's in, in lots of systematic theology books. Um, this idea that God, he created things for his glory. His desire is to reveal his glory. I hear theologians say that kind of thing all the time. Uh, God does what he does. There is no God but me, God says, right? I am God and there is no other. 
I will give my glory to no one. And the whole idea is God is a God who displays his glory. Why did he create the universe? Because he's a God who has to display his glory. And he says that in Isaiah. But we miss the context. God is not abstractly saying, I must display my glory. I I mean, theologians say this, it's unloving of God who has all this glory to display. It's unloving of him. It would be wrong of him not to create creatures who could enjoy his glory. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. That's nonsense. When you read it in its context, the whole point is God is going to display his glory in his ultimate servant who is Jesus Christ. He's not some abstract being that says, I just have this glory that has to be let loose, so I've got to create creatures to, to display my glory because it would be unloving not to do that. No, that, that's, what, that's the kind of thing that theologians come up with. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit with this, and this, this may provoke you. And if so, we'll come back and answer it. But one of the most famous theologians of our day, and, and again, I, I don't mean this, to be to be demeaning to anybody, okay? I, I really don't, and I and I, I, sh- I sort of hesitate to <laughs> to say this, but I want us to think. The statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. All right, or let me let me back up to to not be so personal to uh, to Brother John Piper, and again, I do not mean this to be pejorative, but that is that is kind of a um, an, another expansion of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. All right, here's your assignment for tomorrow. Show me where the Bible teaches either of those things. Okay, show me where the Bible says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him or that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Go ahead, search for that, find it, and then uh, you can post in the comments if you find it, and uh, we'll interact with it. Those are theological deductions driven by a systematic approach to the Scripture. The Bible tells us how God is most glorified. The Bible tells us what brings the most delight to God, and it's not simply to display His glory, and it's not simply when we are abstractly satisfied in him. It's not what the Bible teaches. So, all right, our time is way up. Uh, I, I probably raised some things there, so feel free to fire away and we'll interact with them. There is one more great question that was asked yesterday in the comments, not in the in the actual chats, and we will come back and look at that tomorrow. And depending on how you all respond to this, we'll either follow up on this final discussion or and or we will look at uh, what the Bible says the law is useful for, um, and it's not what systematicians say. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for your patience and your, uh, your grace and humility here. Uh, please hear me in context. Again, I am not desiring to, uh, to provoke anyone, but, but, but provoke us to think. And uh, have a great day. We will see you tomorrow.